from Silicon Valley, the heart of startup land. It's Getting to Alpha, the show about creating innovative, compelling experiences that people love. And now, here's your host, game designer, entrepreneur, and startup coach, Amy Jo Kim. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Today, we're talking with Heaton Shaw, a serial entrepreneur and startup advisor who loves to create and grow businesses. Heaton is the co-founder of two software-as-a-service companies, Crazy Egg and Kissmetrics. He's also the co-host of The Startup Chat, a podcast that offers unfiltered insights and actionable advice straight from the trenches of startup life. Heaton has great insights about business and marketing and a knack for simplifying complexity into cogent ideas. Whether it's a webinar, a podcast, or a blog, if you're trying to educate somebody and that's the goal or educate the reader or the audience, then the titles are, are going to be very similar because all you're trying to do is get people to click. So in a podcast, you're getting them to listen. In a webinar, you want them to fill out the registration thing. And in a blog post, ideally, you want them to finish reading it. And the same solution works in all those situations. Listen in and learn from a true pioneer who's on the forefront of building and selling software as a service. So welcome, Heaton, to the Getting to Alpha podcast. Glad to be here. Happy to chat. I'm really excited to talk to you. We've known each other for a while, and I've admired you for a long time. And I'm really excited to share your trajectory and your thinking with uh, everyone who's listening. So, Heaton, give us a whirlwind tour of your background. How did you get started in tech, and how did you decide what to pursue along the way? Sure, yeah. Um, for me, it actually starts all the way when I was five years old. And uh, when I was about five years old, uh, my father would started telling me that I should be an entrepreneur. Um, he's a physician, he's an anesthesiologist, and um, his thesis was just, uh, you know, as a physician, he doesn't really use his brain. I think he, he just really means he's not newly challenged every day. Um, and there's there's some ceiling to, like, kind of where he can sort of what he can achieve uh, in his profession. And I think he wanted a different profession for me and or he realized that uh, it just wouldn't work out if I tried to work for people. And so I've only had one job in my life. It's a, It was an internship in high school. Uh and it was a company that my dad had known the two founders uh, since they were in the garage. And it's a company that's public now called Massimo, and they make medical devices. And I worked for the head of IT there. So anyways, that's the early whirlwind, which, which shaped kind of everything else. So in high school, I had uh, businesses selling car parts, or I had a business selling car parts just so I could fix up my car. Um, just so everyone knows, you probably shouldn't try to turbocharge a Honda Accord. It didn't really go too well. Um, and, uh, but I used all the money to fix up my car. So it was very entrepreneurial. Then in college, I just had a bunch of offline businesses while I was there. And when I got out of college, it was about 2003. And, uh, I, my co-founder now, who's actually my brother-in-law, he had one customer paying him 3,500 bucks a month to do SEO. And, uh, I really didn't have to work, uh, for a while. Uh, I just made a bunch of money in college. And so, uh, we decided to start the company. And it was a consulting company, and we were just doing marketing consulting. And, and the story really starts there for kind of everything else we've done. Uh, really quickly, within the first year to two, uh, we realized we needed to start building products because that was a more scalable business model than consulting. And uh, so we decided to start building products. We built about 12, 13 different products. Uh, I've said many different numbers throughout the years. It's all the way up to 20, depending on how you count different software products. The funny thing is neither him or I nor I are engineers. 
Um, I fake it now. It's about 10 years later, so someone's got to fake it. Uh, and he uh, doesn't, and he focuses much more on sales and marketing. And since then, we've launched to uh, two to three different companies, all building software. And my latest one is called Quicksprout, and we're building content marketing software. And the previous two are analytics companies that are still around. One is Kissmetrics, and the first one, which is 10 years old this year, is called Crazy Egg. And they both just help people understand what their customers, users, visitors are doing on their websites. Wow, and it all started when you were five. My dad told me I should be an entrepreneur, so uh, I owe him that, that, that gratitude for pointing me in the right direction, I would say. Where were you living then? <clears throat> That's a good question. So I, I was living in New York. Uh, I was actually born in Africa, Zambia, and when we were five, <clears throat> um, uh, or when I was five, we moved to New York. And did you grow up in New York? Yeah, until I was about twelve, and then we li- and then we moved to Southern California. So I had a, I would say, very formative years, pre-teen in New York, and then sort of post-teen and, and onwards in Southern California. And I've been in California since. Wow. So you're a hands-on company and product builder from way back. Um, what prompted you to start sharing your knowledge through writing and speaking and podcasting as you are now? What, what is it that you're passionate about sharing that made you want to do that? Yeah. So it, it's, um, it's another thing that probably just uh, I watched growing up. So my father was very helpful to other people. The, in Africa, they actually gave him the nickname Doc because anytime somebody had any med- medical issue um, in their family or themselves or anything, that he'd be their first call just because he, he was always able to guide them to the right solution. And so I used to say, he, you know, he, he, he's more selfless than I could ever imagine to be. Uh, now, uh, I don't really say that anymore because uh, I'm not sure if his, self, his brand of self, selflessness matters in the world, <laughs> just, just because a lot of people are helpful these days uh, compared to uh, back then. Uh, I think his ethos was a little bit more special back then. But I essentially watched it growing up and I wanted to, uh, you know, I, I mimicked it for lack of a better word, uh, just because I watched him do this growing up and I really liked it. And um, it was something that uh, I naturally sort of hung on to as, as I grew up and wanted to help other people. And, you know, more importantly, I, we're, we're in a world today where there's just so much opportunity to uh, share what you know and, and sort of uh, have other people sort of relate to it and get, get sort of use out of it. So why wouldn't you do it? Absolutely. Along those lines, what are the topics that are most near and dear to your heart? Yeah, I've had some challenges with the the question like that uh, because I'm going to say something that's pretty generic, but like uh, my co-friend and I are challenged with this all the time because him and I are very similar on this one, but we just love business. We don't really care what kind it is. Like if someone has like a coffee shop and I get to meet the owner, him and I or her and I have a lot to talk about. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and, and so it's, it's like that for anybody essentially starting a business, running a business, don't really care too much about what kind of business it is. It just helps me sort of, I just love this idea that you can create something and people will pay for it. And, and, and there's value. There's a, there's an awesome value exchange there. And it all goes back to when you were five. <laughs> yep. Pretty much. <laughs> That's actually a deep answer to me, not a trivial one. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, yesterday I was talking to a game designer. We talked about it. And at the end he said, you know, I just... I don't care if it's a board game or a physical art game or a commercial shooter. I just love games. That's awesome. And yeah. I, that's what I'm hearing in your answer about business, that it transcends the platform. You love the process of starting and running a business. 
Yeah. So I think that's super cool. So you've also, what's interesting is that you have both the perspective as a business creator yourself multiple times with all the struggles that ensues. And you've also have this ethos of helping and you have this wonderful show, podcasting show and channel now, which we'll talk about more in a moment. Um, but through that, you've also seen a lot of first-time creators try and start a business, try and create a product, try and build an MVP, try and understand who their customers are. So what are the most common mistakes from your perspective that you see first-time creators make in the early stages of designing and testing their ideas? Yeah, one of the biggest mistakes I see is, uh, and it's very fundamental, and there's a there's definitely been a reduction I'd say over the last five ten years, um, partly because of the content you know people like you share content I share, but um, it used to be the case that a lot of people would would be really excited about their idea and the solution that they have in mind uh, to some problem that they personally experience or that they saw experienced by somebody they know or friends or just out in the world, and then they'd just start building stuff instead of actually understanding whether that problem's even worth solving. And so I, I see the biggest problem as being creating something that nobody cares about. And uh, as product builders, we're all sort of affected by this uh, because it takes this sort of unnatural level of excitement and optimism and determination to start something. But then it takes this self-awareness, which is kind of the opposite of that oftentimes, to actually grow something and, and take it from that very early stage where, you know, some would say it's very fragile and, and turn it into an actual, you know, an idea to a to a to a, a MVP, if you want to call it that, to a real product, to a business. And those are all different stages in, in the very earliest stages of building a company. And and you know, if you get that first stage wrong and you don't really find a problem worth solving, you're, you're going to be like, you know, sort of almost like the mouse in the mouse wheel, just chasing your tail. Exactly, I call that going from salesman to scientist. Yeah, you know, there you to, go. Um, rally the teams to raise money, you know, even if you're in school to get a group excited about working on your game or your app or your product, you need to be a salesman. You need to have that confidence and reassurance and vision. And then to do a good job of building and testing your product and making sure you're solving a real problem, you need to be a scientist. Yep. And take that dispassionate, what am I learning, even if I don't want to learn it? Yep, pretty much. So that's awesome. So yourself, as you're building businesses, you know, turning back to your own methods and what you've learned, how do you go about the early testing and iteration phase on a new project? First off, how do you decide which ideas to pursue and which to filter out? You're a creative guy. How do you uh, make those decisions? Yeah, I think for anybody building products, any kind of products, it, it, it always starts with your own point of view. And understanding whether it's it's uh, you know the right point of view for a market or being able to change that. So for me, I, I generally gravitate towards where I see opportunities to actually innovate. Um, and for me, it's innovate on product. I think there's also other types of innovation, but I always sort of tend to lean on that uh, as as my go-to. Uh, for example, at Crazy Egg, we were one of the first companies to create a visual representation or where people are clicking on a page, which enabled many people to understand data, period, when they couldn't before because they're not into numbers and they don't understand bars and charts and don't want to spend the time to 
you know, know how some tool works. Instead, we gave them a visual view on this, and that was just a, a, a big change, and customers like that. Uh, we did the same with Kissmetrics, where we built this funnel tool that you could, that was really flexible, that was literally didn't exist before we created it. So for me specifically, I look for those kind of opportunities. When I don't find those kind of opportunities, I tend to uh, essentially not really enjoy the job uh, as much as when I find opportunities where I can actually innovate first. And I think it's been a learning experience myself because it, eventually a market isn't like that uh, and a market becomes crowded and then you have to figure out kind of what to do next. But in general, I like to find opportunities where I, I can wedge myself in and and sort of solve problems that customers actually have, sometimes very directly uh, in that problem. For example, with Kissmetrics, we built those funnels, and and a lot of other products now have the same funnel. So if you know if we were to keep doing a great job in that business long term, we would have kept innovating around that idea and, and that method that we were very good at. And I think that those are those are all things that I would encourage anyone to do if you're. For even if you're a multi-time builder, just think about what are the things you've built and what's the commonality, because that's that's generally what you're going to sort of default to uh, in any market that you're in. Uh, and 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 I think that's that's one of the biggest challenges. Everyone has their own point of view in in you know what kind of problems they should solve or what kind of solution they enjoy, and knowing that will help you pick markets and ideas better. So you like to innovate first and solve a real customer need. Yeah, or, or one that's uh, – yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, real customer need, that's a good way to say it because in, in both those products that, that you know um, have been around a while, uh, over five years, both of them, uh, it was around a real customer need, and it was very easy to figure it out, to be frank, because we would just look at the most popular product in the market, which happened to be Google Analytics at the time, and just be like, where does it suck? And then why are people building some of the stuff in-house? And we found uh, something where we could solve a problem that solved sort of uh, a major issue in that market. You just outlined a great strategy for getting a foothold and into solving a real customer need. Exactly what you just said. That was beautiful. So let's dig into tactics a little bit. Um, At what fidelity do you first test your ideas with target customers? You talked about this process for both Crazy Egg and for Kissmetrics. There was some point where you built a prototype before you launched the whole product. So... And I know you're doing that now as well in your um, new endeavors. So how do you go about early low-fidelity testing? What are some of your tactics and tricks? Yeah, um, I'll talk about my tactics and tricks uh, in a second um, for sure. I think one thing that I always try to remember is like looking at the resources I have available to me and, and we as a team have and figuring out which low-fidelity fid- tactic is going to be most useful to us. For example, uh, in some cases, building something with an engineer can only take two or three days, especially with things like Bootstrap uh, and, and these these sort of UI. Basically, Bootstrap's this UI thing uh, that Twitter came up with um, that helps, that just basically gives you a template for a web app. Um, and, and also, it's responsive and all that kind of stuff. And so sometimes we'll just pick that off and then build something that an engineer builds just to get something out and get people looking at something or using it or using it for their own data. Sometimes we work on a lot of data things and people need to see their own data oftentimes. Could I characterize that as building a very stripped down and simple working system? Yeah, I like that because it's it's not even an MVP. Yeah. yeah, well, there's lots of different kinds of MVPs. You can, that's right. You know, that's the thing is MVP is yeah. both a process and a great variety. So, 
Yeah, um, yeah. For me, since since it again, I agree with you. Uh, just to simplify it for most people, I like to say, well, if it's MVP, it, it's more on the product side. While if it's not an MVP or if it's a different type of MVP, it's more of a prototype. So you know, people say like Wizard of Oz testing, where you know it looks like it's an interface and there's a whole bunch of stuff going in the background that's manual. That's an MVP. Uh, to me, the that's an MVP only if there's actually a product in front of it. Um, that's the way I define it. Otherwise, it's a prototype. And a prototype, we might have some users see or we might want to play with it, use it, so that we can get a better feel for what we're trying to do. Um, that's been the single easiest tactic, to be frank. Because just telling an engineer, I need these five things done, you have three days, and this is kind of what it needs to look like, most of them at this point, when I bring them that kind of problem, they're used to me doing that. So they know what to do in those three days and they plan it accordingly. Um, if I'm working with a new engineer or somebody, I, I would just be very deliberate about, I'm not saying three days. So you work 24 hours a day. I'm saying three days. So we get about a good shot of about 20 ish hours in those three days, <laughs> you know, or whatever it may be so that you, know, you can spend those hours on just getting this system working. Cause we need to kind of play with it to understand it. Uh, and, and I, 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 you know what, I'll just label it a prototype. Sure. And in gaming, we might call that the first playable. Um, but there's lots of different words. For me, the important thing is that not to get into, and I appreciate your definitions. It's really good to define how you're using a, a term and then move on, right? Because there's not going to be a universal definition. No, of course not. And yeah. it, my experience has been that, you know, iterative prototyping is how you get really good stuff. And at some point it turns into a product and sometimes you do, um, mock-ups and sometimes you build a simple working system and sometimes you do a Wizard of Oz prototype and sometimes you build a app that you have people use for two weeks in a diary study. There's a lot of different ways to learn what you need to learn. Yep. But the thing yep. is you work backward from what do you need to learn and you're focused on that and then what resources do I have available that could help me learn that, which is what you're talking about. Yep. But what you didn't articulate but I'd love you to talk a little about is – all of that was clearly driven by you had something in mind that you needed to learn from that, from building that app. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit, about having clarity when you're doing whatever you want to call it, a prototype, an MVP or whatever, having clarity about what it is you want to learn from that. Yeah. Um, I think I think where, what your first shot of learning is going to be different depending on the the – mainly the market you're in. So for a game, I'm assuming, um, you know, uh, there's some component of fun, some component of enjoyment, some component of like, you know, they remember it after they try it and a bunch of that kind of stuff that you want to learn about in a game. And I'm sure you have your ways. In software, what I like to do is um, spend a lot of time figuring out what is worth learning. And the way I would do that is actually talk to a ton of the customers around their workflow. So what I found to be the biggest, the, the most useful thing to me to create more innovative software products is to start by understanding someone's workflow, and then based on the workflow, I can determine, you know, um, we can determine what we need to learn. For example, if um, we're building a, uh, right now we're building content marketing software, our angle is to actually help people write better content. So we did about 20 interviews of people creating who are creating content on a regular basis and try to figure out sort of what's their workflow. And we found these seven steps that people take. And in the case of that process, the one thing we, we figured out and are honing in on is actually one of the first things they try to figure out, which is choosing a topic or a title. 
And depending on who you are and how you think about it, you might pick one or other, and then you have these five or ten different ways. So for us, all the experimentation we've done, all, all the prototyping we've built has been around how do people pick a topic, come up with a headline for their content. And so there, a lot of the prototyping, MVP, whatever we're doing, has to do with that. I've even gone to the lengths of like people will give me their calendar with their titles in there, and I just go in and make all the titles better. And yes, there's no software. That is a version of a prototype because what we discovered is almost everyone that's taking content marketing seriously has um, literally a sheet with a calendar and all the titles are going to post that week, that month, that day. And so what I've been doing is because one thing we discovered is that and one thing we also know intuitively based on our own experience is that the headline is, is the most important thing when it comes to content in terms of getting people engaged or that's like the start of the journey. So it's like, you know, if you have no front door to your house, anyone can walk in the title or the headlines very similar where, you know, it, it allows people to understand what you're all about um, and all that kind of stuff. Almost like a house always needs a door. Uh, content always needs a great headline. And so, you know, I, I just started helping people rewrite their headlines. And through that, I learned a lot about how people create the headlines how far ahead they pick them, and all these things that we wanted to learn all around the headline. So for, for, for me, it's like it's very tactical, and it's very much about what part of the workflow in a SaaS uh, – sorry, not even SaaS, but in a – what part of a workflow, so what people are trying to get done, do, do we want to focus, and then doubling down on the learning based on that. Awesome. So – You've had a lot of experience with remote collaboration. We were talking about that earlier, switching gears a little. And when you talk about working with engineers, you're probably talking about working with engineers that aren't sitting next to you, right? That's correct. So um, what practices and tools have you tried out for remote collaboration, and what are you using now? Let's start with that. Yeah, so I've tried everything. Um, There's probably no project management tool that you can throw at me that's at least somewhat popular that I haven't tried, whether it's Trello, Asana, um, uh, Quip, uh, Hackpad before Quip, and, and, and obviously Basecamp and all their different tools. Um, and, you know, I stopped worrying about the tools. I, I just really quickly stopped worrying about the tools and started worrying a lot more about the process and the documentation. And then also labels. We, we, we do something where every, every, everything we start has actually a label, uh, for example, in design work, one thing we learned is that our designers, if they spent a lot of time on a specific solution, they get really caught up in it. Uh, and then other people might have different ideas when they first see it uh, and then sort of throw wrenches in the main idea. When a, when a designer, as, 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 as you probably know, they're very thoughtful and, and they thought through everything, but they don't necessarily always write it down. So we started labeling their design work as explorations and said, hey, the first thing we're doing is we're just exploring this thing. And at that point, we'd get like 10, 20 ideas from the designer with all pros and cons, and everyone's happier. So for me, it's like a constant – the way we work on processes on a remote team is a lot more iterative and constant uh, just because everything – most of the stuff is written down. Uh, And so early on, we used a lot of Gtalk, Skype, and a bunch of different systems, and then obviously whatever the flavor of the month, week, year was on uh, collaboration. So we've used Confluence from Atlassian in the past all the way to Quip. It's kind of the new one we're using now just because of the folders and in between we use Hackpad, but it got bought by Dropbox and didn't feel like they were improving the product. So, you know, we, we try to keep up with the product cycles there and try to use the most modern thing. One of the reasons is I use I use a lot of stuff on my phone. 
And so if something isn't, it doesn't have an app and or isn't HTML5 sort of responsive friendly, then then I will we'll switch to a different tool. Confluence and a bunch of those other tools weren't very good at that. Um, and so that's the tooling side of it. Then the sort of, um, the, the other side I'll point out on the remote side is the thing that's changed our life, and, and I'm sure it's going to be obvious, is actually Slack, where in my latest company, which we started in, in March, uh, it's called Quicksprout. It's a content marketing software. In that one, I don't think anybody sends any email. <laughs> I haven't got an email from anybody on that team in forever since March, literally. Like, there's probably been 10 threads, maybe 20 threads since March. Everything else is on Slack, and there's rooms and bots and all kinds of action going on, and it's just changed the game for us. Have you written a Heaton bot yet? Uh, to no, give not good yet. <laughs> uh, feedback on headlines <laughs> with all the idea. AI logic yeah. embedded in your uh, yeah. many years of content marketing expertise. <laughs> yeah, I would yeah, like the Heaton bot, please. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're thinking about stuff like that actually with the headlines, you know, where we can just, you know, reduce the friction to people creating one. So that's a great idea. Well, I've converged on Slack as well and found that it's reduced a lot of friction and allowed me to get better work done faster with uh, teams I'm working with. That's awesome. Yeah, same Sounds here. like you've discovered the same thing. Yeah, I'm on like 25 slacks right now between all the different things I'm involved in. So it's, it's pretty insane. Whoa, yeah. dude. <laughs> so what would you say? You, you have such an interesting variety of projects and clearly a ton of creative energy. What would you say is your superpower as a creator? What's your sweet spot? I've just gotten a lot of practice advising people talking to them, understanding understanding thing, their problems, understanding their situation um, really fast, uh, and then helping them take action. So for me, like, um, uh, if I meet with someone, it, it's generally they walk away from the meeting very motivated in a way that um, is just sort of, uh, I don't think other people motivate, you know, the folks they meet up with the way that I tend to on average. You know, and so I guess my superpower is just understanding humans and, and trying to help them become better. And I just have a lot of practice. That's the only reason I'm good at that. At least that's why that's what I like to tell myself. Well, that and then it all goes back to when you were five. There you go. And you watched your dad helping other people. That's right. I mean, all the stories he would tell me is about how he helped people, like even like things like when, you know, they call you on the plane uh, and, and they say, hey, is there a doctor on the plane? He'll be the first one to raise and I'd be like, I'm a doctor. I can help. Wow. Right. And, and just 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 learning, watching that, like, you know, I really like that, that 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 makes me feel good to help other people. And, and, and I think it makes my dad feel good. I just co-opted that. So what's on your horizon? Where's your focus these days? What's exciting? Tell us about it. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think about software as a service businesses a lot. All my businesses have been software as service. I also think about consumer businesses a lot um, just because I think we're learning a lot on how to build software on both sides, um, whether it's like a monetization and subscriptions, turn it going to consumer products more and more, or, you know, uh, actually useful, engaging products moving over to the SaaS world and all that. So I think the thing that gets me excited is there's just a ton of opportunity to provide people with great products and have them use them. And I think we're realizing now that uh, people don't want to pay for software. And, and that's probably the most interesting, challenging thing that, I, that I've noticed lately. And, and so for me, if I build software, I, my, my goal now is try to make it free uh, so that um, more people can use it and adopt it and then go, go, I don't mean figure out how to make money later, but use freemium and, and a free product as a way to get the product to spread to 
you know, ideally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of businesses. And so that, that's probably what excites me the most right now is all the opportunity around that and how to actually do that. Because those are things that, um, you know, I, I think are, are, are going to evolve software. I mean, my belief today is that the, the software budgets are actually, they're increasing for the short run, but in the long run, they're going to go to zero. Especially as a lot of us, the cost of our software goes to zero. That's a disruptive thought. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably many years ahead on that one, but uh, it, it's something I'm, I'm very in tune with, and a lot of the patterns that I'm seeing in a lot of products kind of relate to that. Wow. So for folks who want to gather more of your wisdom and learn, uh, what are some URLs that we can share? Yeah, I, I got lucky enough to get my first name.com, so Heaton.com. I own that, and it's a newsletter for SaaS. Uh, so if you're interested in SaaS or considering starting a SaaS business or investing in it or whatever, um, I uh, sort of have a newsletter for you. And then outside of that, uh, I got one other thing, which is uh, my friend Steli and I, we, we have a, a podcast. Uh, we have all, almost 40 episodes now, and it, it comes out. There's two every week. It's about 20 minutes. It's not very long. And it actually, it was a 40th, 40th one just came out. I think it was this morning. Uh, and it's called thestartupchat.com. So that's another place where if, if you enjoyed hearing what I have to say here, uh, I've got tons of stuff to say. <laughs> so Great. Yeah. Tell us a little about Steli. Sure. Steli, uh, him and I, uh, we recently met maybe officially uh, probably within the last year to 18 months, and we just literally hit it off. We met at a conference, and we were, we were just uh, casually advising people uh, as they walked up to us and talked to us and him and I just got along and had a lot of uh, good, good conversation and things to things that are very complimentary. And today he's, he's a founder running a SaaS business called close.io uh, where, where they're making uh, CRM software. It, uh, uh, that's just deeper integrated uh, with uh, sort of voice calls and stuff like that. And uh, you know, he's been around and he likes helping people as well, just like I do. So we decided to do a podcast together. There's no, there's no real agenda or anything like that. Um, I, ten- I generally just tell people just look up, look on the episodes, and if you know you're struggling with something or there's a topic that's very timely for you, pick that one and listen to it. And and uh, nine times out of ten, uh, it helps people. Ninety percent chance it'll help you. Wonderful. If you want to find these links, look in the episode notes. They'll all be there. Thank you so much, Heaton, for joining us today and sharing your wisdom and all of these great stories. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Getting to Alpha with Amy Jo Kim, the shows that help you innovate faster and smarter. Be sure to check out our website, gettingtoalpha.com. That's getting2alpha.com for more great resources and podcast episodes.